Good morning. In the 21st century, if you want to learn a new skill, you're likely going to turn to the master of all trades, YouTube. How to tie a tie, how to draw a unicorn, how to vote, how to make slime, how to make pancakes, how to lose belly fat, how to cook rice, how to take a screenshot, how to pronounce quinoa, how to solve a Rubik's Cube, how to renew a driving license. These are, in fact, some of the UK's top searches on YouTube of all time, and I purposely omitted all the ones related to the thing with the thing and the sickness and the thing. <laughs> we know from experience that learning a new skill usually has three parts. It starts with what we might call a knowledge phase. Oh, I know, I'll just have a quick search on YouTube to see how to make perfect rice. That part is easy and even pleasurable. We're on a fact-finding mission. The second step, then, is slightly more involved in that it, it, it requires us to sort through all the information that we're seeing. How to restring a rotary clothesline. What? Hang on. Wait, why is this video 15 minutes long? That's... No, no, wait. Why is he doing that? Why is this string over there? No, I'm not... Next. And you move on. Ah, there we go. This one's only one minute. Oh, yeah, that's more like, I can do that. In this second step, something about what we're seeing clicks. It makes sense. We can now proceed with a bit of confidence. The third and final step is where it all, hopefully, comes together. After knowledge is acquired, okay, and knowledge is affirmed. Yep, I can do that. It's now try time to try it ourselves. Slime ingredients at the ready. Rubik's Cube, check. I'll take a side of quinoa, please. TV off, running shoes on. Fingers positioned just right for that screenshot the world is yearning to see. Let's make pancakes. Now, you wouldn't ever claim to have made pancakes yourself after having only watched a YouTube video, would you? After having watched someone else tie a tie? Learning all about swimming watching instructional videos by Olympic swimmers, feeling the desire to go swimming, and making plans to make it happen doesn't make you a swimmer or prove that you know how to swim, does it? You can't learn to swim without plunging into the water. Similarly, we find that faith, too, has three parts. It starts when God intervenes in the life of an individual on the Broadway, or elsewhere, he fills them in on what he's up to, most notably in the message of the gospel, which we can summarize as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. All of this through Jesus Christ, except for the fall bit. When presented with the gospel, the hearer may then respond positively, okay, God, or negatively, nope, next, the response is seen by whether they commit themselves to this newfound knowledge, whether they plunge into the water, or whether they carry on unchanged. Christians for centuries have therefore found it helpful to describe faith in three parts. Knowledge, affirmation, a, a yes, and commitment. But because Christianity is a relationship with a person, it's not just commitment to a set of truths, though that is, of course, essential. Our capacity to develop intimacy and to decide between emotions and feelings and to sense God's Spirit moving in us, in the soul, is crucial to maintaining and cultivating commitment to God.
these three elements of faith, the knowledge, the affirmation, and the commitment, are indispensable for helping us build a broader understanding of the concept of faith. An additional definition of faith then becomes trusting what we have reason to believe is true. We see that faith is an action, an active trust, and in our case, it's an active trust in a person, God. In this series on faith, we are hearing about the people of old who responded with faith when God interrupted their lives. Last week, we looked at the life of Noah and how he walked faithfully with God. By faith, Noah was sure of the things that he could not see. He, was, he, was, he had a certainty of what he could not see and a hope, namely that God would rescue him and his family from coming judgment. By faith, Noah pleased God. By faith, Noah understood that this world was not to be held on to. By faith, Noah understood that the past, he, he understood the past, looked to the future, and lived in the present. He hoped in God for a better future. He took God at his word. By faith, he chose to walk with God rather than being pulled by the current of society. By faith, Noah obeyed God, built a big boat, and sought refuge in it. By faith, Noah worshipped God. In holy fear, Noah partnered with God. Noah took the plunge. This week and next, we're looking at the life of Abram, or Abraham. We read about him in the Hall of Faith, where we're spending some time throughout this series, in Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read from Hebrews 11, the bit that talks about Abraham from verses 8 to 12. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place he would later receive as an inheritance. And he went out without understanding where he was going. By faith, he lived as a foreigner in the promised land, as though it were a foreign country, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, who were fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even though Sarah herself was barren and he was too old, he received the ability to procreate because he regarded the one who had given the promise to be trustworthy. So in fact, children were fathered by one man, and this one as good as dead, like the number of stars in the sky and like the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. That's Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. Now earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 6, we are warned not to become lazy but to be imitators of those who inherit the promises of God through faith and perseverance. What would cause the, he the author of the letter to the Hebrews to organize his sermon around a series of warnings, to give a series of warnings to his readers, to his hearers? From chapter 10, the chapter which precedes our hall of faith, we get the impression that those to whom he is writing are experiencing severe persecution. So that we read in chapter 10, verses 32 through 39, remember the earlier days after you saw the light, you stood your ground while you were suffering from an enormous amount of pressure. Sometimes you were exposed to insults and abuse in public. Other times you became partners with those who were treated that way. 
You even showed sympathy toward people in prison and accepted the confiscation of your possessions with joy, since you knew that you had better and lasting possessions. So don't throw away your confidence. It brings a great reward. You need to endure so that you can receive the promises after you do God's will. In a little while, in a little while longer, the one who is coming will come and won't delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And my whole being won't be pleased with anyone who shrinks back. But we aren't the sort of people who timidly draw back and end up being destroyed. We're the sort of people who have faith so that our whole beings are preserved. The author then moves into a description of faith that we've already looked, about, looked at in previous weeks. What then is faith, the author asks. It is what gives us assurance to our hopes. It is what gives us conviction about things we can't see. It is what the men and women of old were famous for. After that, the author goes on to list the acts of faith of God's people. And of all the Old Testament examples, our author spends the most time on the life and trials of Abraham. He focuses on his call and his wandering in the land, the miraculous birth of his son Isaac, and following the binding of Isaac where Abraham, and finally the binding of Isaac where Abraham is called to do the unthinkable, sacrifice his miracle baby boy. That we're going to talk about next week. Today we're going to focus our attention on the first of th these three, uh, the first of these episodes, his call. And we won't have time to look at everything in detail. Next week we're going to dive deeper into this episode of the binding of Isaac um, later on in Abraham's life. But we're going to turn now to looking at Abraham's call in Genesis um, chapter 11, the end of Genesis chapter 11. Terach took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, and the son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, his son Abram's wife, and with them he set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. When they came to Haran, they settled there. The lifetime of Terach was 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go out from your country your relatives, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. Then I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will exemplify divine blessing. I will bless those who bless you, but the one who treats you lightly I must curse, so that all the families of the earth may receive blessing through you. Verse 4, so Abram left just as the Lord had told him to do. And Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, and all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they left for the land of Canaan, and they entered the land of Canaan. Verse 6, Abram traveled throughout the land as far as the oak of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he moved from there to the hill, hill country east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Beth, Bethel on the west and I on the east. 
There he built an altar to the Lord and worshiped the Lord. Abram continually journeyed by stages down south to the Negev. So that's the end of um, Genesis 12, verse 9. Now, God is awfully specific, although startlingly concise, about what Abraham is to do. Curiously, he gives more instruction about what Abraham, what Abram is supposed to leave behind compared with where he's taking him. What's he going to do with him there? Like, he tells him more about what he's going to leave. This will require faith on Abram's part to move from the familiar, the casual, the comfortable, to venture out following God's leading to a land yet to be shown. Abraham is to experience movement from his land, his people, his family, into a closer relationship with God. God makes three promises to Abraham. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and I will make your name great. Here we see God's plan for redemption. And as we read throughout the Old Testament, we will find that it's one of these three which is constantly under threat. But what do we mean when we talk about the faith of Abraham? If we are to imitate Abraham's faith, what do we mean by the faith of Abraham? If we feel confused about faith, well, it's not surprising because in English, faith, the word faith is used in a variety of ways. And even in the Bible, faith language is used in a variety of ways. It can mean any number of things, and we get the impression that it develops from the Old Testament into the New Testament. Even so, it's crucial that we understand it because faith is a central part of the relationship of God and his people. If we are to be God's people, we are to live lives marked by faith. So what do we mean by faith? As we mentioned earlier, some have found, found it helpful divide, to divide faith into three parts. Faith as knowledge, faith as affirmation or agreement, and faith as commitment. An exploration of these three parts will hopefully cast light on and give us greater appreciation of not only faith, but how Abraham walked with God. So let's look more closely at faith as commitment or loyalty. Faith as commitment or loyalty is a relationship marked by faithfulness and is demonstrated by obedience, as we saw in the case of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God, we, are, we find in Genesis 6. When we look at this third part of faith, faith as commitment, we find that the concept of covenant is key. A covenant being an agreement, being a passionate, interactive relationship between God and his people. We see that to have faith in God or Jesus is to be faithful to a covenantal bond like marriage which is initiated by God and bound according to appropriate promises and expectations on both sides. Faith viewed this way is not just a mental exercise. It's not just a list of things to memorize and repeat or get somebody else to say. It is a response to a relationship that shows itself in our emotions, in our actions. Faith is a relationship of loyalty that goes in both ways. Yes, by faith, we know that God exists and that he rewards those who seek him. But we do not always know what he is up to in great detail, nor can we always have complete certainty that our personal understanding of him is entirely accurate. While faith as loyalty does assert certain things about God, 
It seeks to demonstrate faith by walking with Him, listening to His voice, faithfully obeying, faithfully bonding. So too, the author of Hebrews introduces the faith of Abraham this way. By faith, Abraham, when he called, when he was called, obeyed and set out. For a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, he went out, though he did not know where he was going. Abraham demonstrated faith by affirming God's promises, not audibly with his mouth, but visibly with his feet. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your land. So Abraham went. Simple as that. In response to God's call, Abram started down a path of loyalty to the one who called him out. All of this with the imperfect knowledge of the future. Go from your land to the land that I will show you. Feet do not insist on understanding. Obedience doesn't require complete knowledge, but trust. Trust not as a heartfelt emotion, but a putting into practice of the conviction that God has plans for my well-being and not for my harm. He has plans for a future and a hope. We may think of Abraham as a shining example of faith, but that was not always the case. It was a process. God turned Abraham into a model of faith. In the very next episode, after his call, if you keep reading there in Genesis 12, Abraham tries to give up his wife to another man. Probably because she was barren, because she was unable, or they were unable to have children. And later in life, he would attempt to do it again. Abraham is very much on a faith journey. He didn't start out as a shining example of faith. But God took him there. He learned to trust God through life's trials, and so must we. God is faithful such that at the end of Abraham's life, God will say of him, Abraham listened to my voice and kept my charge, my orders, my decrees, and my instructions. And it's my desire that the same would be said of us as well by by the end of our lives as God carries us along. How can we not trust a God who continues to demonstrate himself trustworthy and faithful? Faith exercised in this way is a mind-body exercise where we demand of our bodies what our mind may struggle to affirm. Abram is commended for setting out when called, even though he didn't know where he was going. It is not so much faith in action as faith action. Faith actioned. Faith that moves feet before it moves mountains. So what does the message of Hebrews, this call to endure, uh, and the faith of Abraham, what do they call us to today? We too are called to faith action. We are called to leave certain things behind while faithfully walking with God to a place and a personality that He will show us. At the start of the new year, I made the mistake of informing my children that my New Year's resolution is to become the kindest person they know. Like you, they replied with laughter. They know that I have a long way to go. But their laughter has spurred me on to print out a bunch of um, 
uh, 1 Corinthians 13 passages around the house on little A5 pieces of paper and keep them up. Keep them up. And my goal, I've got one on the bedside table, I've got one in the bathroom, and I've got one in the kitchen. My goal this year is to make it the first thing I read when I wake up. Every day, I know that I have a long way to go and that I'm not going to get there by accident. Every time I put the kettle on, I look at 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't jealous. It, is, it doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. It isn't happy with injustice, but it is happy with the truth. Truth. Love puts up with all things. The kindest person my children know? What a challenge when it feels like child rearing exists not for our self-satisfaction, but for our sanctification. When else in life are adults constantly pushed to humble themselves, all while being subjected to routine tests of patience? Love is pushed to its limits when 3 a.m. cries sound beckoning a bleary-eyed parent to set off on a benighted journey throughout the house. Raising children, being in that close of a relationship with another human being, is a tool that God uses to chisel away the things on us that are not of him, to reveal the person he has created us to be. This week, I made the mistake of asking one of my children to read the first Corinthians sheet to me. Their sweet little voice provoked me with each little pronouncement of love's character because I know with each of those, I knew that my conscience was calling to me that I am not patient. I am not kind. I do act arrogantly. There's a reason why Paul lists love among the spiritual gifts. If we are to love as Christ loves, that means that it will have to be his spirit who will bring it about in my flesh. Because I can't do it. I can't do all these things. I want to, and I need his spirit to help me. I can accept, like Abraham, to embark on the journey of trusting God because he's intervened in my life with this word of scripture. I'm embarking on that journey but it's the tendency to wander and the temptation to give up and return to a former, less, less than godly way of doing things that I on my own cannot avoid. But as Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through, through Lord Jesus Christ. If we think primarily of Abram's faith as one of mental assent, agreeing to a body of doctrine, then we might find it odd that to, to, we might find it odd to suggest that that sort of faith needs to be put into action. How do you put into action something that I agree to in my mind? How do we enact doctrine if not through obedience to the one who gave it to us? Seeking the Christian virtues of faith, love, hope in response to the same being shown to me by God in Christ is the fuel of faith action, faith enacted, faith actioned. Faith actioned in this case starts with the understanding, starts with understanding, finding out what God requires. Faith as knowledge. It's my hope that by reading 1 Corinthians 13 every day, I might start to grasp what love is. This new knowledge is then either affirmed or rejected. Every day I have the choice to either say, yes, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go for it or just say, next. 
And there really are no other options to either accept or reject because to half-heartedly or hesitantly obey is in part to reject. Once affirmed, the new knowledge now at home in us invites us to entrust ourselves to its wisdom. I trust that these words in 1 Corinthians are for my good and not for my harm. I trust that by being patient with my children is for my good and theirs and not for my harm. God is working out his plan. I want to be a part of it. As a result then, when confronted with whatever hardships, afflictions, or troubles life may present, whether they be at home in the process of child rearing or growing in Christ-likeness through the sanctifying effects of marriage, will I, a believer, one called out by God, remain steadfast? Will I be found trustworthy, true, Faithful to the one who called me. Will I uh, respond in obedience to the call of God on my life, or will I falter? Oh, Holy Spirit, accomplish this work in me. Faithfulness to God's new covenant in Christ calls me to step out in faith even when the outcome is unclear. It calls me to greet from afar God's promises to write what is awry in this world through the constitution of a new creation of which I am evidence and a participant if I walk in faith. Guided by the Spirit, I will step out in faith today by being obedient to the things that I know God has already called me to. I will be faithful in the seemingly unimportant things as I work towards Christ's likeness in all things. I will investigate the Scriptures with fellow believers, both ancient and modern. To keep the cycle of faith ever maturing, I will seek to embody faith seeking understanding as I learn more about who God is and in turn more about who I am, affirming this truth with my heart and entrusting myself to him with my feet. How is it that without faith it is impossible to please God? Because he has already told us what he requires of us. He has told us how to please him. Trying to seek his approval any other way is a fool's errand. He has prepared good works beforehand for us to walk in them. Faith is required to please God because faith action responds favorably to his good intentions. It starts with that knowledge-seeking exercise that we talked about. It gains an awareness of what God's up to. That comes through reading the Bible, meditating on Scripture, conversing with God in prayer, and conversing with others over meals and drinks. It's secondly, an awareness brought about by the Holy Spirit that that knowledge is true. It's one thing to have the knowledge, but am I agreeing to it? Am I saying, yes, that's true? When it resonates with us, when we accept its truth value. But it shouldn't just stop there with the first two steps of faith. Because as we read in James, James says, you believe that God is one? You believe that God exists? Well, you do good. Because even the demons believe that, and they shudder. So we know it's not enough to just know and affirm the truth about God. That's why thirdly and lastly, we must step out in a trust that leans into the truth. A whole person awareness, acceptance, and handing ourselves over to the object of our faith. We entrust ourselves what we have reason to believe is true. 
What links together the recipients of Hebrews with the heroes of faith is the need to endure faithfully amid life's challenges. In hardship, there's the temptation to abandon the faith to avoid further persecution. At these times, we are called to demonstrate faith. We are called to demonstrate faith when we want to give up or when the outcome isn't clear. We are called to put faith into action when the world around us makes earthly life uncomfortable. Faith, when the lie presents itself, that it's easy to escape this or that look of judgment. The lie that that we're missing out on something by doing things God's way. The lie that we're missing out on the fullness of life by not participating in this or that social function to avoid being the odd one out. When the fear of missing out in the eyes of the world collides with the fear of missing out in the eyes of faith, who wins? Our neighbors, our coworkers, our families will surely give us a break if we only take a break from our faith, right? The hall of faith in Hebrews 11 tells story after story of a faithful God and those who trust him. Those, those whose lives are marked by faith. How did God do it? By faith. How did these people of old accomplish what they did? By faith. By faith is repeated over 20 times in this chapter. God called them out to live a life of walking in fear of him while temptation all around beckons them to abandon and chase after a more ephemeral life, one that's fleeting Our natural inclinations draw us back to our old selves, don't they? It's always easier not to be patient. It's always easier to keep doing the things we've always done. But faith calls us to persevere, to step out, to take daily leaps to follow Jesus in ways both ordinary and radical. But we are not persevering so that we ourselves can create our own self-made future. Our success, either now or in the future, is not dependent on the power of passion and perseverance, as one popular book talks about, our own ability to muster up courage to keep going. We look rather to the one who is passionate about fulfilling his promises, promises that stretch back, right back to Abram and run down through the centuries, undeterred generation after generation. We look to a God-created future, not one that we create. Elsewhere, it's been pointed out that tis not the dying for faith that's so hard. Every man of every nation has done that. It's the living up to it that is difficult. Whatever God calls us to, no matter how clear or unclear it may be, let us respond in faith like Abram. Faith like Abram's faith, faith that moves, faith of a friend of God as Abraham is called. Interestingly, this passage where Abram is dis- described as a friend of God, some early Christians found it difficult to accept that somebody could be, that this Abram could be described as a friend of God, and they changed the word friend in their Bibles to slave of God. Curious? But maybe that's how we feel sometimes, and maybe that's where you're at today, is you feel like this whole exercise of pursuing God or coming to church feels more like being a passionless slave of God than an energetic, interested friend of God. Make no doubt about it. You do, in fact, belong to God if you belong to him by faith. Make no, no, make no mistake about it. Faith action 
Faith action is fashioned from a bond of seriousness. But he is drawing you in closer than just a servant, than just a slave. You are a son. You are a daughter. He has provided all that is required for you to be in right relationship with him, if you will only respond in faith. Abraham believed God, and it was calculated in his favor, putting him in the right. That God made decisive movement towards an ancient Near Eastern semi-nomadic tent dweller, Abraham, calls out to us today. He speaks, interrupting the life of Abram and the flow of human history. Go, and Abraham went, just as the Lord told him to. Let us not just respond in faith on that day that we're called or interrupted, but let us respond in faith day after day, embarking on a journey of faith like Abraham. The journey is winding, but the destination is sure. A city with firm foundations, whose architect and builder is God. We see it now from a distance, but that distance is ever decreasing for the friends of God. It's like starting a journey up a spiral staircase. So let me leave you with a story about American civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr., who actioned faith in time-altering ways. His fellow activist, Marion Wright Edelman, reflects on visiting King's church after his death, and this is what she says. In Montgomery, Alabama, my son Jonah and I went to the Civil Rights Memorial, and then we walked around to Dexter Baptist Church and went up into Martin's pulpit. I'd forgotten what a little place it was. We looked out from the little pulpit into that little church and talked about how something so big started from such a small place. Just a lot of committed people of faith in church on one side of the street, and all the power of the state of Alabama in the Capitol right across the street. As a young lawyer, I used to listen to Dr. King in chapel at Spelman College. One of the things I liked about him was that he didn't pretend to be a great, powerful know-it-all. I remember him discussing openly his gloom, depression, his fears, admitting that he didn't know what the next step was. He would then say, take the first step. You don't have to see the whole staircase. Just take the first step. Let us take the first step. Amen.